Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. Providers of accredited education for health professionals need to demonstrate that education activities have changed learner behaviour and healthcare quality for the better. And one of the best ways to show positive change is via outcomes reports. In this episode of Right Medicine, Andy Bowser, a medical writer and certified healthcare CPD professional, talks about outcomes. We talk about the format of reports, who the audiences are for outcomes reports, and how the results can help education evolve and improve. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine and I'm Alex Housen. I'm here today with Andy Bowser, a medical writer and certified CME professional who's the owner and lead developer with Icon CME, a content development and consulting firm in Philadelphia. And today we're going to talk about outcomes reports in CME CE. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate uh, you having me on your podcast. Uh, it's good to see you. Can you just start by telling listeners who you are and what kind of work you do? Sure. I think probably the simplest way to say what I do professionally is that I'm a medical writer. But I think that like a lot of people who get called medical writer, the, the story is much more complex than that. And it kind of evolves over time. I think writing is really just kind of the end station of what we do, or maybe like the keystone skill that really unlocks all these different opportunities we get to build things and create things and communicate with people and and lead and everything else we do as writers. I think that a lot of the work I do is in this the CME space or the C, CE or CPD space. So what I do is really defined a lot of times by the different roles that we have in this community or different roles that emerge. That's everything from developing content, whether that be patient cases, interactive patient cases, PowerPoint presentations, or multiple choice quizzes. On some days, I'm a researcher who's trying to identify professional practice gaps and develop needs assessments. Sometimes I'm a scientific director or a medical director, as it's kind of called, who manages complex programs and kind of serves with a, as a liaison with key opinion leaders or faculty members in a specific therapeutic area. And sometimes it's really, you know, getting under the hood and thinking about how can you build a new model for education? And especially looking at how we can create better or more effective educational experiences, you know, whether that's that learner is online or whether they're looking at an app or they're sitting in real space in a real room where a, a real live meeting is taking place. 
And finally, I think really this whole idea of uh, well, there's also you know strategy too. You're looking at this increasingly complex treatment landscape, especially in fast evolving fields like cancer. And you know, my role is to say you know assess this and how are healthcare providers coping with that change, and are, are what are they struggling to understand or, or to do in clinical practice? And then finally, I think you know what we'll focus on today a lot is just the whole idea of educational outcomes or did. What did a C, what does CME activity intend to do, and did it did it accomplish what it hoped to do in terms of changing something about the knowledge or the attitudes or the professional practice of a of a learner? So, first of all, I, I want to thank you for sharing such a wide description of the range of the different types of hats that medical writers actually wear, and I think it's it's really interesting and important for people who are thinking about coming into CME as writers to kind of see that your role can really extend beyond writing itself and that the process of writing also involves these other kinds of activities that you're describing. So I think that's really helpful. And I do want to kind of ask, when you work with education providers, do they know what they're getting? Do they know they're getting such a good deal? <laughs> by hiring you as a writer, or do they hire you as something else? You know, I think when people have a specific need, they tend to think of think in terms of boxes, like I need this type of a person. And when people say, I need a medical writer, they may not realize or appreciate what all goes into that. Like there's a, you know, let's say we're developing like a needs assessment. Do You know, do we understand what the therapeutic area is all about? How much experience have you had in this? How much do you understand? the science uh, behind the medicine. And I think it's not sufficient to just be a person who is you know, using their fingers to type on a keyboard. You know, there's much more to medical writing than that. So I think in terms of clients, a lot, there's a lot of forward thinking people who get it, but a lot of people just don't know and may, may not know what they actually need. That's a great point. I do want to ask you about how you landed in CME. But I also want to make sure that I put in the show notes, you know, at the very beginning, you talked about CME, CE, CPD. There's a lot of different terms that get used in this field. And uh, so make sure to kind of parse those terms out in the, the show notes for listeners who, who might not be familiar with all of those terms. But they're, they're kind of focusing on a similar set of activities for medical writers. So how, how did you land in? Continuing medical education, continuing education, continuing professional development. So writing has always kind of felt like a calling to me or kind of a, a path or a journey I'm meant to be taking, which maybe sounds a bit cosmic, but I think other professional roles and business models that I've tried or business ideas, maybe sometimes they work, but they don't really feel authentic. Like I feel like I'm meant to be doing something else. And then when I get back to, you know, creating or communicating or, or building something, it feels like I get kind of back in sync. But I think your question is more about, you know, why is CME on that path? And clearly, I think a lot of us think of CME as the accidental profession. You know, we arrive in CME from different angles and we bring our own unique perspectives and skill sets with us. Not many of us actually set out to be a, a CME person, <laughs> but we just end up there. 
And I think for me, my journey kind of started when I was a freelance writer for hire and I was living in New Orleans in the 1990s. So kind of back in the era of Seinfeld. And uh, <laughs> and so for me, that meant, you know, writing for the local uh, Times-Picayune newspaper or the Alternative News Weekly or the City Magazine. And I got involved in the Business Weekly where I started writing about healthcare and managed care and HMOs, which was a, a hot new thing that needed to be explained at the time. Mm. And then somehow I ended up landing a gig with the Hollywood Reporter. So my world uh, in terms of writing kind of shifted towards writing about enter entertainment conferences that would roll through town. So this could be anything from like Pamela Anderson would be signing autographs to promote her show. Mm -hmm or a TV series that she was trying to sell, or, you know, the cast of Beverly Hills 90210, or Eric Estrada trying to drum up interest in a Chips reboot, or <laughs> <laughs> or even got to, or even actually Muhammad Ali one time, I oh, had wow. the privilege of uh, seeing him. And that was a real kind of moving experience to have him. He was actually promoting a, bi a biopic that he was uh, about his own life. And so he was promoting that. I think that as I was at events like that, I would kind of look over my shoulder and say, what are these medical conferences taking place in the other room? What are, the, what are those all about? Is there anything mm. for, their, their, for me as a writer? So stuff was actually happening there. And there was some kind of clear parallels to that whole star-studded you know, entertainment conference world. People are standing up, they're applauding, giving a standing ovation <laughs> not for Muhammad Ali, but it would be for some researcher, this guy in a plaid tie who's reading from a blue PowerPoint slide with yellow and right, white writing on it, right? <laughs> and, or over there, it's like, or like Dr. Atkins of the Atkins diet. He just sold, you know, umpteen million copies of his rebooted diet book. And so he was there debating Dean Ornish about whether a mm -hmm. low carb diet is going to kill you or destroy your kidneys or cause you to have a heart attack. And or Bernard Fisher. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember Bernard Fisher, but he was the kind of this preeminent uh, breast cancer researcher who was. Of course. Yeah. 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 He was just in the middle of this um, scandal as to whether or whether not he uh, falsified breast cancer data. So mm -hmm. I got to meet him and, and talk about that whole controversy. So I'm and Viagra. That was like. <laughs> This was the nineties and it was I, yeah. I was in the room when they presented the pivotal data on Viagra for the first time and the room was oh, um, wow. it was in an uproar. I mean it was like this is, you know, it wasn't pre internet, but there wasn't that whole, you know, <laughs> internet um dissemination of information. So maybe this was ninety eight, so maybe a couple weeks or months later, um FDA made their decision and then boom, it was like forty thousand prescriptions overnight for that drug. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, things were happening. I was kind of observing all this and, and absorbing it and writing it up for, you know, UPI or the New York Times Syndicate, uh, which is a news service similar to AP. And but importantly, there are all these broadsheet paper journals that kind of emerged and really thrived in this setting. And they would publish medical news for doctors and other healthcare providers. And then there were standalone companies that put out these very kind of rudimentary uh, CME newsletters or these primitive CME websites. And then the broadsheet medical news publications started getting into the game with their own CME activities, you know, putting out CME supplements or standalone monographs. And in my view, kind of evolved into the CME focused organizations that we 
think of today as mechs or the medical education companies. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this transition where it was becoming less about breaking hot medical news, but more on, you know, making CME the enterprise and the mission. And now we've got a purpose and a long-term vision for really putting together educational programs to change practice. I think what people were not so attuned to at that time was really figuring out, well, a number of things, but one of the, one of the big things was educational outcomes. Like, mm-hmm. what is our education trying to change? Does this doctor have a problem with something that he's trying to solve or something he's struggling to do? How are we going to orient an activity to actually address that problem? And then what happens afterwards? Do we actually make a difference in this healthcare provider's knowledge or their understanding or even in their you know, clinical practice? That's just such a great history of not only your kind of entree into the CME field, but the evolution of the field itself. What was the moment of change from your perspective uh, in terms of when the focus became very much about, well, I guess, two things, accreditation, accredited continuing medical education, and and more of a focus on change, not only knowledge change, but also practice and behavior change? Yeah, I think... Back in the, what I think of as the early days of, you know, when I was doing this, like 2000 or so, it was a bit, bit unstructured as to what was actually considered CME and what qualified as CME and how CME was developed. And I think that was started to get codified. And you probably know more about the details of this than I do, Alex, but I think it might have been around 2007 where there was a, a, a lot more kind of oversight or thought that went into what actually counts as accredited C, uh, continuing education and, and how it gets developed and some of the firewalls that are in place to say things like, you know, if you're receiving grant funding for this program, there needs to be a firewall here. And this is, you know, this is an independent educational grant. This is not something that the supporter of the activity can have a, have a hand in developing. So things like that that didn't necessarily exist in the early days, I started to notice that was much more of a focus around maybe 2007. Yeah. Right. And then I think after that, things started to get more focused on, you know, are we are we actually changing something or actually making a change? And that was a gradual process where people would say, we should really do outcomes on this activity. And someone else would say, what's outcomes? And then you have to say, well, I heard it's like this thing where you write a um, textbook <laughs> on what the activity was and what they did. Right. And you'd end up with like a large Microsoft Word document of mm-hmm. many pages. I think that's thinking and that has changed in two respects. One is that we kind of all agree that educational outcomes are important for any activity we put out there. And number two, that uh, the reporting doesn't necessarily need to be this dissertation, but there's a lot of interesting and creative and ways you can portray the data and mm-hmm. help people comprehend what actually were the outcomes of this activity. So I definitely want to get into that. But before we get there, so when you're talking about outcomes, what kind of things are you talking about? Or or what kind of things are your clients talking about? So outcomes is kind of a term that has different meanings to different people. But I think there is kind of a hierarchy of the kinds of things that might get reported out of a activity, right? There could be who actually attended. Was this a group of cardiology physicians? Was it you know, nurse practitioners in primary care? Or was it people who are 
early on in their practice or people who are quite experienced in in what they do. And so we kind of think of that as like demographics, right? Or what are the what is the audience composed of? I think some other examples of outcomes kind of going up the ladder would be what do the participants in the activity know about the therapeutic area? Do they know that people should be screened for colorectal cancer starting at a certain age? Or do they not know? Are they confused about that? Do they feel confident in their knowledge of that? Mm-hmm. What do they actually do in practice? So these are the kind of things you can measure and say, like, are you screening a patient for colorectal cancer? Yes or no? Or do you often screen this particular kind of patient or, or not? So it's really a kind of a combination of knowledge you're trying to get at. Do they know something? And as a result of the activity that they're participating in, do they know something new or do they know something better? Do they have, what is their confidence level going into it? Are they kind of sure about their practice? Are they kind of shaky? And can you give them better confidence through the provision of this activity? And then what are they kind of able to synthesize that and put this into clinical practice? Will they commit to doing something in clinical practice is another thing. And you might follow up uh, several months later and say, hey, you know that thing you were talking about changing? Did you actually change it? And so really getting at this whole idea of changes over time and actually making a change that's going to impact in a positive way the, the health of the patient or, or a mm-hmm. patient population. You mentioned a couple of things there that um, I want to sort of just dig into a little bit. One is, you know, you talked about going up the ladder. Do you have a particular kind of model of what outcomes looks like? I mean, I know that, that Moore's outcomes at levels is, is a common model in the field. Is that what you're usually working with? Or do your clients use other outcomes models as well or frameworks? No, I think the, the Moore's model is very basic and does the job. And I think it's great. I think it's really a kind of a, a lingua franca. It's kind of people, something that people <laughs> can really get their minds around. For those who are not familiar, it's a kind of, what is it? Seven rungs in the ladder where you start at participation. Did they participate? And then it goes up the ladder to some of the things I just talked about. Right, right. Their knowledge, their confident, confidence, their competence mm-hmm. in terms of putting this knowledge into practice. Then you have the next level will be actual practice. Are they changing practice? And, and then beyond that, you know, are they, is there a, a change in population health that's taking place? So I'd encourage that's if you're kind of new to CME and that's something you're not familiar with, just go Google the Moore's levels and get used to that. Cause that's kind of a common concept that comes up a lot. And mm-hmm. it's good to have that, that knowledge under your belt. And you also talked about, and thank you for that. Those are, that, that's uh, good counsel for people who might be, not be familiar with Moore's outcomes. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in the, in the show notes. So here we're talking about levels of change, but you, I think you hinted at change. Another way of thinking about change, you talked about confidence and commitment to change. I think, you know, where do those kinds of things fit into the whole concept of outcomes? So it's an interesting concept. I, I really like this idea of measuring someone's confidence. Like, um, first of all, there's a very simple way to do this to say, how confident are you in your ability to treat a patient who has mm-hmm. adverse outcomes from COVID-19 or something like that? Mm-hmm. And 
then, but there's another kind of use of confidence, which I'm really intrigued by is that, you know, when you're, you know, a common thing we do to measure outcomes is to ask someone a multiple choice question. You know, would you give this mm-hmm. patient a antiviral? Would you prescribe them bed rest or whatever you would do for a patient with adverse outcomes after a COVID-19 infection? And that's good because then you can kind of say, well, you know, 20% of people knew what they were doing before they went into this activity and then 100% knew after or 98% or something. And th- therefore, our activity is great. We did a great job. Well, the problem with that is how many people are actually just blindly guessing. Mm-hmm. and that's where I think confidence can kind of come in as another layer. And I've seen this in some activities that people develop where they say, um, so how would you treat this patient? But then they also follow up and say, how confident are you in your answer? So, yeah, so there's the interesting thing about that is you can kind of get a sense of change, even if you don't see a lot of change from the pre-activity multiple choice question to the post-activity multiple choice question. Mm-hmm. let's say that 80% of people got the right answer going into the activity, but they only rated their confidence as two on a scale of one to five, right? You know, right. that people are just like, I don't know, this sounds right. The question was kind of obvious the way you worded it. You need to do a better job <laughs> at that. <laughs> so I just guessed it, but they're being honest. You know, it's, it's a way mm-hmm. to kind of capture mm-hmm. that. And then if you look right. at the post activity, and the you know eighty percent again or eighty one percent still guess the right answer or still choose the right answer, and you look at their confidence, and now it's all the way at the, the other end. It's like a four out of five. Then you know right. you've actually changed something. You know, it's like when you're learning a language. It's like you hear a word that sounds familiar, but how confident are you in its meaning? And you can actually use mm-hmm. that word mm-hmm. in a sentence or in a conversation with somebody who speaks the foreign language. But how you know? You may not even know really what that word means, but with repeated mm-hmm. use, you start to get it in context and your confidence yeah. gets better. And I think that's something you can measure with these confidence measures. Yeah, I know. I think that's, that's such a beautiful point. Um, you know, how, how many of the clients that you work with are kind of using some kind of confidence measure or how, or how extensive do you think that practice is in outcomes evaluation? Yeah. So confidence measures are pretty bog standard, I would say. I mean, just that the very basic use that we talked about first, like if you're doing an outcomes evaluation, it's pretty standard nowadays to have like one or two questions in there. How confident are you in something that will harken back to the key learning objective Mm -hmm. of the activity? How confident are you in your ability to diagnose a rare disease? Something like that. And then, but these, the kind of the latter approach of using a confidence question to gauge how much is blind guessing or how, how much is, is not, or is something I've seen in kind of online models. And I've heard it talked about at meetings like the Alliance meeting, which is the annual meeting of the ACEHP, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it used quite so extensively, but I think, I think it has a lot of mileage behind it. It could be used for, mm-hmm. for a lot of things. Yeah. That, and that's the thing is we're going here from just talking about very basic ways of evaluating outcomes to some of these more advanced concepts that people should be thinking about. Right. Hello, Right Medicine listener. Are you ready to level up your needs assessment writing strategy? If you're a writer, perhaps you've heard that writing needs assessments is a great way to break into CME, but you've never seen an example of a needs assessment 
because they're often proprietary and you don't know where to start. Well, Next Level Needs Assessments has you covered. In this six-week program, you'll learn how to write lean, agile needs assessments with the help of deliberate practice, peer-to-peer discussion, and expert feedback. You'll learn how to identify clinical practice gaps, craft actionable learning objectives, describe anticipated learning outcomes and behaviour changes, and draft a needs assessment based on course materials. At the end of the course, you'll have a needs assessment for your portfolio. The fall 2022 cohort of students called this program the best medical writing course they'd taken. They loved the interactivity and feedback. They used the sample needs assessment they created to win business and said the program exceeded their expectations. You'll get access to quality course materials, weekly live online discussion with me and your peers, a course-specific needs assessment toolkit with foundational materials and templates, and written and verbal feedback from me. The program's open for enrolment with an early bird discount that expires on January the 27th. There's a link in the show notes with more information. And, and and we've sort of mostly been talking about, you know, what what education outcomes are, why they're important, how they might be measured. But you mentioned earlier when we, you know, started talking about this topic, you know, in the early days, and I know you were slightly tongue in cheek, you know, people were were thinking that they had to kind of put together some kind of tome to demonstrate or to report outcomes. That's not really where we are now. And it seems like the stakeholders who need to have an outcomes report. And we can talk about who those stakeholders are because it's not just necessarily external funders. What are some of the things that they need to be able to read in an outcomes report to make, you know, an educational activity meaningful to them? So can we talk a little bit about, I guess, a couple of things, what an outcomes report might look like, what might be in such a report and what some of the stakeholders who receive, who are on the, the receiving end of an outcomes report are looking for? Three questions there. <laughs> pick pick okay. whichever one you want to answer first. Sure. So I think there's, when you talk about outcomes reports, there's several different formats that you can think about. And the most common day-to-day reporting tool that's used uh, has kind of gravitated toward being a, a PowerPoint presentation. And this is, you know, your activity has been active for X number of months and you're sending out an in- interim outcomes report. And here's what happened. Here's who participated. Here's how they answered the questions, yada, yada. And then you might send a final outcomes report that maybe has more detail and has more commentary or analysis of the outcomes findings, which is something that's kind of interesting from the perspective of a writer to be involved mm-hmm. in. And just really quickly to talk about the other types of reports that are out there, you can put your outcomes into a poster presentation and hang it up at a medical meeting or hang it up at a educational meeting, such as the Alliance or the American Medical Writers Association even. And that obviously is usually built using PowerPoint. And we can talk about formats for that that are kind of effective. Some of the other things you can do is actually go back to your old trusty Microsoft Word and create a manuscript that's intended to be published in a peer-reviewed journal mm-hmm. or else shared in some other way. So I think mm-hmm. those are several of the different ways outcomes are kind of typically reported. 
And you mentioned the writer's role in the analysis of outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about what that might involve? Yeah, I think it's a real interesting challenge for um, someone with a writing background to get involved or to, in the creation of a PowerPoint outcomes report, because mm-hmm. it's not only kind of, you know, it shouldn't be like a dry recitation of the facts, but there are opportunities to use things like graphics or infographics even to mm-hmm. make a point visually or position data in such a way that it tells a story. So not necessarily what we traditionally think of writing as being words on paper. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as part of that, there's uh, an element to how can we quarterback these results or kind of talk about what they mean. And that gets a little subjective, but it kind of talks about things like, you know, we saw, we, we tested on three different things. They could diagnose a disease, whether they could treat a disease appropriately and whether they could communicate with patients appropriately about the need to look out for side effects. And Mm -hmm. let's say that the diagnosis nailed that. They figured out what the diagnostic criteria are. Treatment, they nailed that. They figured out which drugs you need to use and which drugs to avoid. And then maybe the third outcomes measure is adverse events in in patient communication. And still they're shaky on that. It's an area of difficulty. They express some concerns about it. Maybe you've got some writing comments, which is something that's really useful for these reports. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, you know, I still... I'm challenged to actually get patients to follow up and do what they're supposed to do. I don't know what to talk to them about in terms of the side effects or, and that, and that can be something that you turn into an analysis point for these reports and saying like, Mm -hmm. you know, while there is a lot of uptake of information regarding how to diagnose this disease, people are generally okay with treating it. There is this big problem because they don't know how to communicate with patients if this mm-hmm. patient gets scared of the side effects, stops using the drug, they're not going to get the benefits of the drug. So that's how you can kind of work that into a point of like, here is the outcome of the activity. And then that gets into, okay, now you've got the outcome. What do you do with that? And that's something not only just interesting to read, like, huh, interesting. We <laughs> made some progress, but we had problems. It's also kind of informs me as a writer or as a developer to say like, here's what we need to go after in the next activity. You know, this is, this is the evolution of education here. Right. And when you're talking about, you know, outcomes reports, who's reading them? Who are they for? I hope somebody. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, certainly a lot of work goes into these reports. Yeah. But seriously, I think clearly there is a, for most programs nowadays in CME, there's a reporting obligation. And this will be kind of expected that um, you will report out data on a certain time schedule. And this gets shared back among others, the, you know, the supporter of the activity, whoever gave the grant funding for the activity. So a lot of people who work in the IME departments of a pharmaceutical company might read it. They might share it internally. And the what we've been told, the value of that is also to basically justify their budget for educational activities right? Like, why do we have this budget for educational activities? What's, you know, what's the point? And so by sharing these outcomes reports, they can kind of get a sense that here's what's happening as a result of the education they funded. So I think that's one audience for it. Mm-hmm. I think who else? I mean, obviously, you or your colleagues who are developing the next cycle of education would look at that outcomes report and mm-hmm. say, a, you know, diagnosis good, treatment good, patient communication bad. You know, we need to keep these 
patients from unnecessarily stopping treatment if we can mitigate the side effect. Mm-hmm. And so that might go into the the planning of another cycle of education. So those are two of the audiences. Are you thinking of anybody yeah. else who might be reading these, <laughs> Alex? Yeah, no, I just, I, I, I guess what I was thinking about is, uh, yeah, kind of stakeholders in other departments, whether you, whether we're talking about, you know, the marketing team, medical affairs in a pharmaceutical company who might also be party to some of the information coming from independent medical education activities, because that will kind of feed into some of the market research efforts that the marketing team are responsible for. Well, correct. And here's the thing about readers is we really don't know who's reading them a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's important to know because that means a couple of things. It means you have to make your report kind mm-hmm. of user-friendly because the people who are reading this are not necessarily going to get things about CME that we get. Right. And so you have to ex- might have to explain things that you might otherwise think you didn't have to explain. You have to put this in a format that's user-friendly and that people can comprehend very quickly because they may get five minutes with somebody in a meeting and say, look, I need to show you the outcomes from my program that, that we funded. And they're like, we don't have time. And so, but they yeah. may have time for a executive summary slide or two. Mm-hmm. So that's something that has really evolved. That's been very useful is to begin your report. Maybe your report contains a ton of data. Maybe there's like 70 slides, but up and so people can dig into it as much as they want. But up front, you have one or two or three even summary slides that tells you who is the target audience, who actually participated, what did they learn, and what are they going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. without going into further detail, those are kind of the core things that you put into an executive summary. And toward that end, the you know, words are still important, but graphics are possibly even more important. It's a bit cliche to say, you know, the words are worth a thousand, whatever, however that cliche goes. Pictures worth a thousand words, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think that, and so that does really raise a really important point, I think, in terms of, you know, some of the skills that writers need in order to be able to work with clients or, you know, if you're working as an employee in, a, in an education organization or an education company. What are some of the skills that writers need to be thinking about in order to be ahead of the game in terms of developing outcomes reports that aren't simply a description of what occurred, but that includes some element of, you know, narrative and storytelling? Uh, you know, you, you touched on that earlier, but also perhaps are involved working with graphical elements like in infographics. You know, I, I, I've seen, you know, several outcomes reports of late that are, you know, increasingly using infographics. So long question, what kind of skills do we need? Well, for, I think fortunately the answer is not much, or I would say it's, I would put it this way. It's, it's not, if it sounds daunting to be developing infographics, it really is not. For example, you can, you know, if you're working in PowerPoint, the best advice I can give is learn PowerPoint inside out because there's many features in there that will support that. There's mm-hmm. Everything from built-in icons that you can use to you know, simple ways to portray charts and, and data. And there's even formatting guides that'll help you line up everything to look nice. And you might not even need to use a, the help of a graphic designer to, to make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. And so 
And I would say that, you know, infographics, I think it, like I said, does sound a bit daunting, but it really should not be overthought. I mean, mm -hmm. it's almost like giving people visual cues to think in a certain way. And the best infographic is one that's almost barely noticeable rather than something where you open it up and say, wow, somebody did a lot of work on these infographics. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that kind of says to me, like, you know, we should have confidence in our data and not necessarily investing in flashy graphics. You know, if right. you, for example, have an icon of a calendar and you put it there, that's immediately going to cue somebody that you're looking at a date field or you're looking at the time when this took place. So instead of presenting like a sea of text, you have like a little icon mm -hmm. to the side of the text that says, mm -hmm. here are the dates and times. Or then you have like a little open book to show like what the educational content was, you know, things like that that are very simple to yeah. include. I never go into much more detail than that than using pre-existing icons mm -hmm. to drive home a point and get people, because it's all about getting people to comprehend what you're writing and mm -hmm. using these visual cues to facilitate that, make it as easy as possible for someone to comprehend something. There was a great book that came out about web design uh, a bunch of years ago, and the book's title was Don't Make Me Think. Right. And the whole idea right. is when you develop any, any type of content, you want to make it as easy as possible for people to understand what the content's about. You don't want it to be distracting mm -hmm. in any way. You don't want to have the make them have them think about anything and with the content to go you know straight into the brain like a sponge and yeah. toward that end graphics can really help you do that charts and figures can help you do that you know maybe not including so many details is also helpful we don't need to have if you're portraying a chart of information or excuse me a, a bar chart we don't necessarily need to have all the hash lines behind it and the percentages going up the the, the left-hand column, the, what do you call that, the y-axis. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can simplify the design just to get to that key little bit of mm -hmm. data you want people to look at, that's fine. That's scientifically sound. You, you know, you can, you can do that without you know, overwhelming people with, with style and conventions um, that you feel like they need to be there. And how often do you find that you are in a position as a writer, I mean, you're always very skilled in, in developing these kinds of reports that you are, and, and you see yourself as a consultant. Some writers will not, but how often do you find that you are, you are advising and counseling your clients to think differently about how they might present, you know, their outcomes reports? Or are you already kind of mostly working with people who, who know what you can do for them? And they, they expect you to, you know, go into that sort of creative mode. I think the first time you work with together with someone, it's a great opportunity to kind of share ideas and think about what you can do differently. So a lot of times when I go into it and someone says, hey, I could reassure you some help on thinking through our outcome strategy. One of the first things I'll say is, you know, show me your standard report template, because mm -hmm. usually there's a template that these get developed from, right? Yeah. And a lot of times I can just sift through that and say, you know, there are some simple things we can do here to make this easier to comprehend, to make it less onerous for somebody who's grappling with 70 slides here. Uh, so there are a lot of easy wins there, I think. And I think once you've got that in place, you can put that all into almost like a template you can use over and over again. You don't even have to think about it. And then you can really focus on the important part, which is highlighting the important outcomes data and really 
providing some analysis of what it all means. And I do want to dig into that that word analysis just one more time, because not all writers will see themselves as analysts or that they should be analyzing data. Can you talk a little bit more about what it is that writers can do to make sure that they are, and maybe maybe analysis is even too too hard of a word, maybe generating insights from you know the data that they're kind of dealing with? Yeah, it's it's a thorny question because you certainly do not want to overinterpret what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I've developed over the years is a strong sense of statistics and what they mean and what it means to be statistically significant. Uh, it's and if it's something that you don't know, that's okay. It's it's actually fairly easy to learn. Mm-hmm. The content of any introductory college-level statistics course is really all you need, or even high school-level uh, statistics nowadays includes a lot of that information. And just really getting used to the idea of, even though there's a numerical difference between one outcome and another, does not necessarily mean that you're actually looking at a something that maybe it could have occurred by chance, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you 49% of people are able to identify the mechanism of action of a of a drug prior to the activity, and then after the activity, um, 65%. Well, 49 to 65% sounds like you move the needle there, right? But it's really depends on a lot of things like the sample size, how many people actually participated in the activity. And mm-hmm. just kind of getting a sense of what those are all about. I'm not necessarily suggesting that outcomes report need, outcomes reports need to be a dissertation in statistics. I mean, I think at the end of the day, people want to see these values that they can eyeball and say, you know, this this did make a difference. Mm-hmm. But it gets to the point that, you know, if you understand the statistics, you'll be less likely to overstep and say and make a make an assertion regarding the data that is maybe completely out of left field. <laughs> that's no, that's great advice. And I think one other thing, Alex, I would say is that analysis doesn't really need to be grounded in statistics. And in fact, a lot of times, statistics are not nearly as compelling as, for example, real life comments from people who act, who participated in the activity. So if you're putting together a report and someone hands you the data, one of the first questions you should ask is, this is great data. Are there any writing comments yeah. that I can I can draw from? Because a lot of times those writing comments will help explain why you're seeing why you're seeing the data that you're seeing. You know, and maybe right. it's like people commit to you're you're looking at it and nobody says they're going to change practice after participating in this activity. Usually, you know, a lot of times there's this softball question of like, do you intend to change practice after mm-hmm. participating in this activity? And yeah, usually you you can predict what the response is going to be to that, but maybe you get a response. Sometimes you get a response that's unusually low. And you're not sure why. One of the, you know, it's, you know, these these outcomes analyses we do are shorthand for being able to get inside these people's minds. So if you look at the yeah. write-in comments, you might see things like, well, I would love to do this, but our formulary forbids this. Or I don't have any, I don't have, there's this shortage of pulmonologists. I, I, there's no pulmonologists I can consult with. Or, you know, there's, it could be any number of reasons why they can't change practice. Mm-hmm. and. Sometimes you can link that to a follow-up question too that kind of systematizes that and says something like, would you foresee any any barriers 
to making a change in clinical practice, right? Mm-hmm. So one thing I'd like to do with that is, and I haven't really done this extensively, but to look at, exclude the people who said they were going to change, but look just at the people who said, I'm not going to change, and then match that against the barriers. And what barriers did they select? And I think that would be a really high level way to illustrate some of the problems that we're having in translating some of the best practices in medicine into actual practices. Such great advice for people who are writing outcomes reports, for writers working with clients to think about how to improve outcomes reports. Anything that we haven't touched on that is important for you and the work that you do in educational outcomes before we wrap up? We've, I think we've covered a lot. We did. We did cover a lot. And thanks for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. I think that as writers or more appropriately, you know, content developers, we really have to get beyond the idea that words are the most important building blocks to of reporting. You know, we need words, but we also need images, graphical representations, such as icons and animations and even audio and video clips. I think these are all formats that you as a content developer need to become skilled in kind of manipulating and using mm-hmm. to kind of effectively communicate or clearly communicate these ideas. I mean, some of the examples we didn't touch on are something as simple as a screenshot. Um, it's amazing how much you can improve comprehension in a outcomes report by including a, an activity of the screenshot, or especially if there's a video and you can mm-hmm. show a video of a model patient being being treated or something like that. So I think there's all these, there's a lot of ways we can communicate that we're just kind of scratching the surface of and, and outcomes reports are a good kind of playground to explore that in. Andy Bowser, playground master <laughs> extraordinaire. Thanks so much for sharing your uh, wisdom on outcomes reports with listeners of Right Medicine. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.